Welcome to the Sunday evening service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained, Christians are encouraged, and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. All right, well, let's go to the concluding, uh, really, installment here in our series entitled Faith Works. James chapter 5, we're wrapping things up tonight, entitling this just Final Reminders from James. And we're at James chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 12. James 5 and verse 12. Father, we pray for your help in this time together in the Word. How precious of you to leave a revelation of your heart to us. And I pray that we would be students, not just, uh, as he would say, hearers of the Word, but doers of it. We pray, Lord, that these uh, truths would be embedded deeply in our hearts, passed beyond our minds, that get to our uh, shoes and shoe leather and motivate us to act like Christ. We thank you again for this practical book. We're grateful. It's a treasure, really, and I pray tonight you would give us uh, some wonderful truths we could take home and put into practice. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen. Well, James ends his very practical book with these verses. Let's read them. You follow as I read, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 5. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation or judgment. Is any among you afflicted? And here's where we often have some uh, strange and confusing ideas about faith healing. Well, we're going to read these verses and try to make some biblical sense out of it. Is anybody among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual Fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and aren't you glad it does? Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was just made out of the same stuff you and I are, and yet he prayed. And when he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Did you know that in 1 Kings we're never told how long the drought was? It takes the book of James for us to figure that out. You know why that is? The same author wrote 1 Kings as the book of James. God knows, doesn't he? Well, we see it then verse 18. He prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. James ends this very practical book by saying there is a ministry of reconciliation or rescue that is so very important that all of us can take part in. Well, he ends this book uh, with a very practical theme. It was found, first of all, chapter 2, verse 20. And I want you to kind of think about rephrasing this verse for me. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Would you tell me in plain English what that means? Well, James pretty much put it in plain English, didn't he? What does it mean? 
O vain man, faith without works is dead. Can someone summarize that verse in a couple words? It really is the title of our series, Faith Works. And he's telling us as a warning, the whole book is really a warning to believers. You brethren which are scattered abroad, greeting, he says. Now be careful that you're truly alive in Christ. He gives us a really a, a battery, a series of tests. He says, creeds without deeds, profession without practice, religion without reality, worship without works, hearing without doing, piety without purity. If that is the, really the trend of your life, be very careful. You may not be in the faith at all. So the question is, throughout the book, laced in different uh, ways, throughout different principles throughout the book, is your faith alive? Is it working? It's not what you say you are, but it's how you live. Faith, does it activate your life? Does it prove? Are you a hypocrite? Chapter 1, he reminds us this way, looking into a mirror and walking away unchanged means perhaps that you are a man that's not working, you're just talking. Chapter 2, favoritism, discrimination. He says, if you favor those with gold rings that walk into your sanctuary, goodly apparel, and you place yourselves near them in order to gain some sort of favor or profit by your association with the good and the goodly, and avoid those that perhaps aren't as much like you or poor. He says it's wrong to respect persons. Discrimination is not tolerated. He should not be tolerated in church. In chapter 3, he devotes the whole chapter to the use of our tongue, our words, our conversation. Isn't it amazing, he says in chapter 3, that we can turn a large ship by a small rudder? Or we can control a large animal like a horse with a bit and a bridle, but the tongue can no man tame. Did you know that no creation outside of man uses its tongue to do anything but praise? Everything in creation praises their, their creator, but man has a tongue often that doesn't praise God. Chapter 4, he attacks our pride, our boasting, our critical spirits. He calls us to humble ourselves in the sight of God, of the Lord. Verse 8, for if we do not, surely the Lord himself will humble us. Chapter 4, he opens it with a question, why do you fight? You ever wondered that? <laughs> Is it really just your spouse's fault? Why do we fight? Where do wars and fightings come from? Well, they come from our own inner desires. We long and we lust for things we ought not to. And then chapter 4, verse 15, he says, when you plan, just practical. The book is full of practical advice. He says, when you plan, don't put God in the margin of your plans and then say, Lord, would you please bless this? I, I plan to go to this city and that city and buy and sell and get gain. He says, don't do it that way. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Just was at a funeral this week of a 57-year-old man. All of us hope for more years than that. And uh, I'll tell you, we, we can plan, can't we? And I want to, as a church, I want you to pray for our dear brother, Basilio. His life has been given to evangelism. And just a couple days ago, the doctors told him, you're going to have to go on dialysis. You know, his plan was to keep on traveling all over the Latino world, Latin South America, 
Puerto Rico and keep preaching until the day he died. And the Lord changed his plan. He's got a wonderfully humble spirit. He's accepting it, even though it's hard to be on that system of dialysis. But we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we don't know what tomorrow holds, do we? We ought to start our day by saying, Lord, if you will for me, then I'd be willing to do what you will. Chapter 5, he lowers the boom. James chapter 5, on all of those who heap treasure together for the last days, trusting in gold and silver, building wealth often at the expense of their own workers in that context. Then he he presses us in chapter 5. I want you to be patient like Job was. And never forget, he says, the final end of Job. We often read Job thinking, how could, any, how could God be so unkind to such a wonderfully spiritually oriented man? <laughs> he says, remember the end, that God is good and his mercy attends all of his ways. It's the overarching quality of how God deals with us. So be patient, wait for it. Some of you right now are in a God's waiting room. And then he ends this book in chapter 5 with a couple more reminders. And tonight we'll just, uh, just look at these reminders as, as we look at James' parting words or his final reminders to all of us, really, and to look at these things and be reminded about these blessings. Well, first of all, he says, verse 12, but above all things, that's, there's a high priority here. He's going to say, watch what you say in the last few verses, and then watch how you pray. First of all, watch what you say, your commitments. Above all things, my brethren, again, high priority, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no, no, lest you fall into condemnation. Now, we sometimes read this in the Old English, we think, well, we all know better than to swear. And he's not talking about swearing. He's talked about that in chapter 3, a whole chapter committed to, to that. The tongue is a world of iniquity, chapter 3, verse 6. And out of the same mouth should not proceed blessing and cursing. He told us that in chapter 3. So he's not speaking about curse words. I hope by now in your Christian walk, you know that. You ought not curse and swear and use God's name in vain, but that's not the point here. He's talking about commitments and vows that uh, people make one to another, uh, that they don't intend to keep. It's almost like speaking out of both sides of your mouth. When James says, swear not, he is referring uh, really to a bad habit that the Jews were getting into in his time and his day. They would uh, make vows and seal the vows with various elements around them. In fact, if you'll keep your finger here, we'll just cross-reference very quickly in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, the Lord is really getting on the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, for their hypocrisy. And he, he, it's this whole diatribe against their hypocrisy, and he gets to verse 16. This is what we call the woe unto you chapter And the Lord is speaking, and He's bringing down wrath and judgment. He says, Woe unto you, verse 16 of Matthew 23. You're blind guides. And and He says this, You're saying, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it's nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, oh, then he's a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. 
He goes on to say, And whosoever shall swear by the altar, they say it's nothing. It's a light vow or commitment. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, or the sacrifice, well then, then that's a big deal. He's guilty. He says, Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. Verse 21 is telling. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that, what? Dwelleth therein. He that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God, and him that sitteth upon it. They had a bad habit of saying this, as long as you don't invoke the name of God in your commitments and your vows to one another, well then, it's not really binding. You ever see somebody cross their fingers you know, like a silly child and, and make a vow, hold their fingers behind their back and make a commitment and say, well, I really didn't mean it. I had my fingers crossed. Well, the Jews were using all kinds of really uh, mechanisms by which vows were were really meted or measured. Well, if you swear by this part of the temple, it's really not binding. But if you swear by the gift on the altar, that's more binding. And, and, and if you don't even use God's name in the vow, then you're really off the hook. The fine print says you're off the hook. James addresses all of us who makes commitments. He's not saying it's wrong to make a vow or a covenant. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, others, all in the Bible used vows and commitments and covenants. We use them in contracts today, in marriage contracts and so forth. Covenants are binding and should be. And he's just saying, believers, let your word be your word. You make a vow, you make a commitment, have integrity. Right? Finish it. Pay for it. You made a promise, dads, you made a promise to your kids, follow through, even if it means going fishing. Uh, or what about this, church membership? Does it matter? Sure it does. Loyalty, integrity to your commitment matters. And, and that's what he's saying. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. If you make a commitment, live by that. And that's the point, really, of, of chapter 5 and verse 12. And it could be a car payment. <laughs> and I know there's sometimes you get, into, get, it, get in underwater, so to speak, or a choir commitment, or a nursery schedule. Pastor, you are gone to meddling now. But we're just to say, listen, this is what I've committed to. And by God's grace, God enabling even perhaps a commitment, a faith promise, to give to the missions. You just do it. If you've signed a card, the Lord saw that. So whether you choose to, to swear by the gold in the temple, the temple itself, the altar, the sacrifice, he's saying, don't try to find fine print. If you're a Christian, you say something, you follow through. That's what James is saying. He's very practical about that. Let your yes be yes, your no be mo no. Let your word be good. Sometimes I know as I get older, uh, sometimes it's a matter not so much of my intent, it's just a matter of forgetfulness. I don't write things down and I forget what I'm supposed to be committed to. And somebody reminds me, usually my sweet family, oh, what, what about that? Did you say something? Yes, I did. I forgot about that. Well, even, even those of us who are forgetters need to write things down. Integrity is so important. Integrity of life. 
That's what verse 12 is about. I've kind of camped there a bit, but it's so important to be people of integrity. A fellow was, was taking a, his, a gal in his car. It was Long Beach, California. He went to get some fried chicken for himself and the lady he was with. He picked up uh, through the drive-thru. He picked up a box of takeout, and he opened it up in the car as they drove down the road, and they discovered it was full of money, cash. The store owner had inadvertently given the wrong box. He instead had all his day's receipts, income. He put it, for, I don't know why this man did it, but he put it in a chicken box. Uh, it looked like a takeout box. and He tried to put it aside. One of the workers mistook it and handed it through the drive through window. So the whole day's receipts went to this fellow, and the store owner was really just sad about that, of course, and uh, much to his surprise, really telling moment, here comes this man driving back with all that box full of money. He returned it to the owner, and the owner was so grateful. Please, sir, he said, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a picture of you and post it as an example of integrity. You and your wife are so rare in this world, so honest. And the man said, please do not do that. Don't take a picture of me. You see, I'm married, and the woman I was with wasn't my wife. <laughs> Be honest in life. James turns the attention of all of us to the fact of how important every part of our life, not just what we say, but every part of our life ought to exude loyalty, commitment to Christ, because God is listening. God is the party he is the co-signer to everything you say and do. As a believer, he signs it with you. So be careful what you say. Now he turns, after being careful what you swear, to be careful uh, in terms of commitments, of course, he turns the next few verses to be careful how you pray. Be uh, careful how you pray. Six times. In the next few verses, we see the word pray or prayer. We see it in verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. Prayer is the theme of the next few verses. And often we get confused about uh, this particular passage. We ask questions when we read about, is this deal about the prayer of faith? What is that? There's often confusion in the church about what is meant by these next few verses. Is anybody afflicted? Let him pray. If he's sick, let him call for the elders and let them come pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the promise is here, at least it looks to be, the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven. And that seems to be like a tremendous promise, and, and questions may come. What is this mysterious prayer of faith. Who are the elders? Well, we know the elders would be the leaders in the church spiritually. So uh, should we, every time we get a fever of over 100, what should we say, 101 or 100, run to the pastor or pastors and st stand at the office and say, pastor, would you please lay hands upon me? And where is that special oil that you pour on my head? And, and uh, there's the promise. There's a little song we used to sing. Maybe we still do every a promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. Well, pastor, you put a lot of pressure on me if every time you got sick you showed up in my office and said, pastor, would you heal me, please? I got this thing, and here's the verse. I'm naming it, and I'm claiming it. Now, I have seen this work in 
and I say work. It's not a magic formula. I've had folks who've come to our office at times, and they've asked in the humility of spirit over a critical disease, Pastor, would you call the pastors in, and would you uh, please pray over this situation with me that God would change the course of this illness? And I have seen it where God does that. Can God still heal? It's pretty weak out there. He can. He does. Can God still do miracles? Yes. And he can, and he does, and he will. But what does this really mean? And can it be a blanket endorsement of, of any, time, any time? Is there an office called the divine healer? At least humanly speaking? I do d- believe in divine healing, but not in divine healers. Now, context is so important. When you study scripture, and I mention that to all of us tonight, context is so important. There are some bridges we all, all need to cross when we study a passage of Scripture, any passage. I, I mentioned that, alluded to that little song, every promise in the book is mine. Well, we got to know that not every verse is applicable to you yourself in this day and age. You say, Pastor, that's heretical. It's all mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. Well, if that's true, when's the last time you went to the high priest and took an took a a lamb with you. Where's your evening sacrifice? You didn't bring a lamb tonight. Different dispensation, isn't it? And so we have to understand that there are, uh, of course, God's the same now, forever, and always. But some of the principles apply to different situations and different times. We have to understand, read the Bible discerningly, context, context, context. So we cross the historical setting bridge. What was the time frame in which this was written? The second bridge is to whom is the verse addressed? What's the audience? Not every verse in the Bible has direct implication or application to you. And then again, there's the culture bridge. What was the setting of this particular verse? To whom is James most, uh, uh, who is he addressing here to this particular verse or verses? There is a a sense in what Paul says, it's a shame for men to have long hair and for a woman to pray with uncovered head. He wrote that to the Corinthians who were surrounded, their culture was surrounded by those that would imply uh, their, their, really their rebellion against the standards of God, of modesty by uh, the ladies especially cutting their hair short, very short. So the Corinthian culture had context to what Paul was saying. And then there was the There's another fourth bridge I want to mention. It's a grammatical, uh, linguistic bridge. In other words, we have to understand what what is the tone of literature that we're reading. Is it narrative, Old Testament, or is it doctrinal? Is it prosaic, or is it uh, poetry? Is it uh, symbolic? All these bridges need to be be crossed while we understand, especially the Scriptures before us. And so we get to this particular scripture, and it's important, I think, to understand some of these wonderful truths and apply them. First of all, he says this, is any among you, verse 13, afflicted? The word there in the Greek is suffering from evil treatment. Kakopatheo, it simply means you are afflicted, tortured. Now, Sometimes there's a great latitude of meaning in the Greek or the English, but primarily James is writing this book 
and his day to whom? James chapter 1. Can you remember that far back? James 1, 1. The brethren scattered abroad. Why are they scattered abroad? Anybody remember? It's a long time ago. We started the series in James. That they are being tortured. They're being run out of town at the point of the spear. They've been, not only the Romans were against this newfound, the way, uh, what they thought was a cult, those that believed in Jesus Christ, the, the exclusive belief that Jesus is God, the only God. And of course, the Judaizers hated Christ. They've crucified the Lord, and so they had no regard for this group of folks called Christians, and so they were scattered abroad. The first century church was persecuted, tortured, killed, afflicted, the main idea behind this word, any sick among you or afflicted, 18 times it has to do, when it's used in the New Testament, 18 times it has to do with physical affliction, 14 times with spiritual uh, weariness and affliction, torture. So let's read on. Is any, money, any among you afflicted? Let him pray. And the, the idea of the, or the sense of that verb is pray and keep on praying. This is a time in which medicine was very, at least good medicine, was hardly uh, available, especially to those who were Christians. They couldn't just go down the street at a med medical clinic and get good care. It says, if, are you scattered abroad, hiding in caves, running from those that would kill you? Would you keep on praying? Pray. Again, that is the sense of these six verses. Keep on praying. That is the theme really, of this. And so he says it only makes sense that James would address prayer as the best medicine for their challenges. And so are you suffering? Are you scattered abroad? Are you on the run? Pray and keep praying. Let him continually pray to a God who cares, a God who comforts. You know, sometimes we chase our doctors before we go to the Lord, Right? And I'm not saying we can't use good doctors. We should, especially in our day and age, our culture, our time. But one of our, the first response to any affliction, whether it be physical or spiritual weariness, is to pray and keep on praying. Go to the Lord. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Song says this, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Then he goes right on and says, is anybody merry? Is he, anybody happy? <laughs> Are you rejoicing? Well, then let him sing. Have you received comfort in your trials? That's why I asked this, this evening. How about a word of th thanksgiving? There's no greater context for the songs of anybody than the church, especially the songs of the redeemed. We're practicing as a choir, the Hallelujah Chorus. The Alleluia Chorus. You know, it's, it's just a joy to sing with a bunch of folks who can oversing guys like us that can't sing really well. And, and yet the theme of that as we, as we sing together, what a better place to rejoice, to sing, to lift our voices than the church. We have something to sing about. We've been saved by grace. Paul was able in suffering, to sing in the jail. I wished I would have, well, be careful what you say, preacher. 
Wouldn't you like to hear that song he sang with Silas that night? That night must have been special for every... I, I doubt anybody in that jail ever heard a prisoner sing before. Praise is comely. It's a form of prayer. Philippians chapter 4 tells us that, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. So sing about it, even when being persecuted, pray and praise. Now we come to the most, really, next couple verses are some of the most misunderstood verses in this whole book. Verse 15, what about faith? The prayer of faith, what is that special prayer? And uh, then, of course, faith healers. Are there such people about today? And if there are, can we have their phone number? (laughs) This is a a verse that has engendered all kinds of uh, misunderstandings. The word there uh, for sick is astheneo. The Greek word is translated, as, as I mentioned earlier, physical sickness 18 times, but 14 times as emotional, spiritual weakness. It's used that way in 2 Corinthians 12.10. Paul says this, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. So it may well be, and I think that's the primary sense here, that this verse has much more to do with the emotional, spiritual weariness, tiredness, stress, distress that came to them while they were being persecuted than it did from specific physical ailments. So we might well say, well, is any among you afflicted or overwrought by the current situation contextually that you're going through? I don't know how many of you have ever been persecuted for your faith outside of somebody raising an eyebrow at you when you prayed over your meal downtown. I don't know how many of us have scars to show from being a Christian in America. Well, these folks were distraught, family separate. Many times, husbands were killed first, leaving widows to take care of small children. And so he is saying, is anybody afflicted, weak, emotionally, at the edge of quitting, becoming disloyal to this God, this Christ? Well, let him call for the elders. They were enduring tremendous persecution. And they're in some of them in a place of serious doubt concerning the high cost of their faith. Discouraged, disgruntled, uh, suffering uh, torture from oppressors, oppressors, verse 14. Come, he says, if that's the case for you, if that's the case, you're on the edge of quitting. Call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. It's an interesting thought that the elders of the church, in the primary, again, not a physical sense, but are called upon to come and pray over those that are, you might say, well, I thought the primary sense was physical pain. There is an element here of that. And I did mention that there are those in the apostolic era I do believe that sign gifts have ceased after the finishing of the Word of God. They became unnecessary. But during the first century, there were some that had the gift of healing. 
And so I'm not saying that this excludes that possibility entirely, but I'm saying the force of the passage is prayer. And when there's a sense of emotional distress to the point of giving up, your hands are falling down, your knees are weak, don't give up. Call for somebody. Call for help. Find a spiritually stable person in your life. Go to the church and say, Pastor, pray for me. Sometimes we treat prayer as some kind of marginal, yeah, I'll pray for you, brother, because I can't think of anything else to do. Prayer isn't the last resort, friend. It is the first resort and the best thing we can do for one another. Do you know a good doctor? Well, that's okay to refer me to a good doctor, but I know a good God. Do you? Go to Him. And if you need the strength of the spiritual leadership, and you should use the church, call for the elders. There's a two-sided coin here. You ought to be reaching out saying, Pastor, pray for me. I, I need help. I'm discouraged. I'm low. I'm close to giving up. Let's go to God together. Let's get at our knees together and let's shake heaven. Let's ask God to work. pastor told about a young man in college that came to him, old seasoned pastor, older pastor. The young man came to him and said, I am I'm a Christian. I'm doing well in my classes. I'm a straight-A student. I'm preparing for the ministry, but they, I have a habit that I can't get over. And I'm about to give up. Cash it all in. Would you pray with me? Call for the elder of the church. Let them pray over him. They did together. And there was a victory at the end of that story. Well, you say, Pastor, if this isn't physical, <laughs> what's the end of that verse 14 all about? What does that mean? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. It's hard to anoint with oil a spiritual need. So what does that mean? It means literally there the, the rubbing of oil. This is nowhere, A.T. Robertson, Robertson says, nowhere does there a prayer of faith, a ceremonial thing at all in the New Testament. We don't see that at all. He says what this means is literally the rubbing of oil. Think, think contextually now. There was no doctors to help. Uh, these folks, many of them had scars and bruises and redness of wound. And so the elders of the church then would pray, and when necessary and appropriate, obviously, and done in an appropriate manner, they would even anoint those wounds with oil. These who were distressed and afflicted, again, weak in spirit, and so the combination of a prayer to a God who's high and mighty, who hears the prayers of those who cry out to him effectually, and the anointing, that's the best medicine they had at the time. And verse 15 says, the prayer of faith shall save. What does that saving mean? It means to restore, to make whole again. Eomai, found in Hebrews 12, 13, 1 Peter 2, 24, speaks of healing from sin or healing from distress, not necessarily a physical turnaround. Now, having said all that, I, I say that there have been times in my ministry where we have done these very things and in the case of those who were physically sick. Sometimes God has answered. 
But there's no magic formula nor magic oil that you apply to someone who has a critical disease that you click your finger and say these words and all of a sudden he's rising up. There's only one really faith healer, divine healer in all of scriptures that never missed <laughs> in all of his, uh, in all of his uh, reaching out and touching blind eyes and Legs that were lame. There's only one divine healer. Every time he attempted that, it happened. Who was that? Jesus Christ. In fact, every time he went to a funeral, it turned into a celebration service. It turned into a resurrection. He never went to a funeral where he went and the man stayed dead or the girl stayed dead. Tabitha, arise. Lazarus, come forth. We know God can do that. But to none of us does he ascribe this special power post the apostles that had that given to them in the early church. The prayer of faith shall save or shall restore, reconcile the sick. Again, that word has that latitude of meaning. The emotionally distressed, those weary and ready to give up, and the Lord shall raise him up. And here's where the Catholics kind of got way off, off stride. Uh, this what they call the last rites. They've used verse 15 and 16 to be that, well, if you get the priest in in time, and he prays for you, what's going to happen is you're going to spend less time in purgatory and your sins, will be, your sins will be absolved if you get the priest there before you take your last breath. And, and he prays these, this, little, this little prayer over you. That's a misunderstanding of this whole concept. Verse 16 says, confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, if this was all about physical healing, it would be very strange uh, contextually that Elijah would pop into the equation. Uh, because Elijah had really, he, he, he didn't have any track record of reaching down and healing people per se. But Elijah, again, the focus of these verses is prayer, effectual prayer. He says, Elijah was just like you and I. How, how was Elijah like you and me? Well, he was weak and he, he was prone to depression. He was prone to fear. Remember the story of him running away from Jezebel, hiding and saying, God, take my life. And the, 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 really the, the hero of this particular passage is effectual prayer to a powerful God. It's not about a magic bullet that some pastor you know has prayed and somebody somehow got better miraculously. Again, that can happen. But Elijah, he was just like we are, but he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Again, the point is the power of prayer to a powerful God and he prayed effectually. I had to think as I was preparing this message, how weak is my prayer life? How weak is your prayer life? Here's a man that when he prayed, not only did he get the attention of God, but God heard it. And Elijah says, would you stop the rain? Our country is running away from you, so stop the rain we need something to arrest the attention. 
Ahab is taking our country off rails and his wife. So please stop the rain. And it didn't start again until this man prayed, Lord, bring the rain again. That's effectual praying. Joshua said, Lord, just cause the sun to stand still. Do you know somebody who prays with the word here, effectual uh, prayer has to do with energetic prayer, energy, the effectual fervent prayer, the energetic effectual prayer of someone who knows God. Do people come to you and say, I've seen you pray. I've heard you pray. And I know you know God. So help me pray that way. The disciples said, Lord, we are like babes in the woods when it comes to prayer. What would change? I'm not talking about climate. What would change spiritually if you prayed like this? How much time a day do you pray? He was subject. He was like we are. And what he did is he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not for three and a half years. And then he prayed again and the heavens opened. And then he ends with this wonderful reminder to all of us who perhaps know people that are pretending to be religious but aren't saved. Or, I think there's a latitude here, or you're saved but you're not living right. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, the idea in conversion is to turn him around. I know of such a boy right now. Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. Obviously, the second death in terms of, a, of an unsaved, unconverted man or woman, boy or girl. What a blessing to be a soul winner. And in the case of someone in the church, perhaps, that is weary, sick as, a, as in weary, weary of soul, if you pray for that one in such a way that he's turned from the error of his way, you're going to save that one from death. There is a death that can come to a believer because of sin, and certainly to an unbeliever, uh, eternity in hell. What a rescue mission we have, believers, within the church. And shall hide, the idea there is to cover a multitude of sins. Being like Christ, stand in the stead of, to pray for, pray with, and to turn from with boldness those that are straying, provides for us a great prize found at the end of chapter, uh, end of chapter 5. What a great book that is. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.